Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my friend, Paul Bohm. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. Good to be here. So, so Paul, you are a you know, community builder. You are a thinker. You are an entrepreneur. Uh, you, are, you are many things. How do you think about your sort of mission in life or, or what you want to be known for or, or what you want others to, to know about you? There have been many different themes uh, throughout my life, but it's always come back to something that fascinated me early on. It's this, this notion of like uh, autopoiesis, self-creation, as they call it. Like, uh, how, how can you build systems that kind of take off on their own and keep doing positive things in the world without you being involved? That, that's been my fascination from the start. How did you get fascinated with that? And where does that manifest in life? Well, I think... It's been there for quite a while where I was thinking about, you know, how do things grow? Could you, could you build an organization that has this property that people want to join it from the outside because it's beneficial for them? But the people on the inside, uh, they also want to go, you know, they want to recruit more people. I kind of deployed that. I'm building something called Hackerspaces. This is where community spaces, there's over 1,300 in the world now where people started building, you know, 3D printers. And I think like a lot of like the modern 3D printer technology actually came kind of off these hacker spaces in, in Vienna and in New York that uh, prepad is built. So yeah, it was just like how, how to build that. And I think partially I've been inspired by uh, reading this book, The Selfish Gene, when I was relatively young by Richard Dawkins, which is really explored and kind of, pulled together all this thinking around evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology all the way back to the big bang, right? So like why, why, if there's matter, why does it organize itself in certain ways? And when you think about that, you kind of realize after a little while, the things that really stick around are the things that make copies of themselves in some form or other. How are you interested in doing that work now, like going forward? I I think it just really reflects on almost anything any of us do in the world, right? So like if you, if you do it on a very simple level, if you help out a friend and enable them to build a company better, hopefully with the right culture, they later out go out as well and help other people build companies. I think Silicon Valley is built on that. So I think for me, that's just something that's, uh, I, I see it in almost everything that you do. It's not limited to a specific mission. I think it's just looking for where are you most useful to enabling other people to do things. Yeah. Let's talk about Silicon Valley for a bit. You you're, you grew up in Vienna? I grew up in Vienna in Austria. Yeah. And you've been in Silicon Valley for some time. And you also have a thesis around it's important to invest globally. Talk about how you've seen sort of Silicon Valley develop or, or more importantly, wh- where you see it going. What's, what's your you know, thesis or interest there? I think Silicon Valley is like definitely like an interesting anomaly. And I, that I, that, that I've, wanted to understand better. I, when, I was, when I grew up in Austria, at some point I had this idea of starting a startup and I'd never met an entrepreneur. I'd never met anyone who built a company before and I just started and I thought I could learn it all online. 
I think I learned a lot. I figured out a lot on my own, but then being in the US, it's like about 10 years ago for me, and and just being there and seeing like how much you just benefit from being around all those people who have figured that out, whereas all those people, you know, in, in, in Europe, it's hard in part to start companies because even if you think you're one of the best people in Europe, very few people who are even better than you have succeeded. There's just very few role models overall in the entire country who have built a Silicon Valley style startup. And when you're in the US and you're reasonably good, it's almost certain that there's both people who are much better than you, but also people who are much worse than you have actually succeeded. So you're kind of, your chance of success is very high in Silicon Valley compared to Europe, just statistically, without really going into the numbers of why. And then it's interesting to kind of look at what's the reason for that. What, like the this number I heard back in 2010 was there that Israel, which is about 8 million people, that's about the size of uh, Austria, about 8 million people, about the size of the Bay Area, about 8 million people. So Israel at the time, 2010-ish, had more startups on the NASDAQ than Europe, India, and China combined. And I was like, how is that possible, right? Like, how is Silicon Valley doing so well? How is Israel doing so well? And how are the 500 million people in Europe doing so well? And on the other hand, why are they doing so well when, once they moved to the U.S., specifically to Silicon Valley? So I think there, there, there was something really interesting about that culture. And then it's interesting, are there other models that can work just as well? Or the places that are now starting to get good at producing startups, whether that's Israel or China, are they just copying the parts that made Silicon Valley work? Like, is there really a fundamentally different way to do it? Or is there just something about how Silicon Valley has done it that can be understood and can be placed somewhere else? Can it be placed somewhere else? Is the network effect too strong? Right. So I've been thinking a lot about those things. Any uh, any conclusions or any predictions about what, what that means going forward and, and how people should uh, act as a result? Well, I think there's a lot of talent in Europe. I think in general, like trying to understand why Europe, and I, I, I don't want to speak too much about Asia or other places like that, because I don't think I really have a deep insight into those places. But having grown up in Europe, having traveled much there, having known many people who've built really cool things and having myself been an entrepreneur there who got pretty close to building a billion dollar company there and kind of failed because of ecosystem reasons. Like basically our VCs over there, we pitched it to VCs. The VCs started their own company because we couldn't raise money and instead licensed the software from my co-founder and they actually built a billion dollar company with my technology. So I kind of like saw the limitations of what happened in Europe before I came to the US. So speaking about Europe, I think it's death by a thousand cuts. It's, it's a lot of different things. But I do think the tide has kind of changed. That's the hypothesis behind me wanting to invest a lot more in Europe now. And specifically, I think remote work has really shifted things. Like almost every company that you see launching in Silicon Valley now can't afford because of just the cost of talent locally and just the insane amounts that the big companies are paying. Uh, to not have remote workers anyway. Information spreads more effectively. Capital is more accessible. Capital is now willing to invest internationally. And so taking a little bit of uh, inspiration from something that I've also been interested for a while, which is like uh, experimental governance and special economic zones, 
a lot of my friends have thought for years about could we build something like Singapore or Hong Kong, let's say in South America or in other places. And the idea there always is, you know, what if we imported like a legal system? What if we made the Supreme Court of like the special economic zone or the commercial court actually be a court that's in the United Kingdom or in the US? Like, could we import Delaware C Corp law to like another country? And I'm kind of like, I kind of came to the conclusion to a large degree with like remote companies that's already possible. So one, like a few of these problems I think you can take out and I think people will start doing that in creative numbers. If you are a European founder right now and you just simply incorporate in the US as a Delaware C Corp, you don't need to fly there. You don't need to be physically there. You don't even need to have a visa. You can incorporate a Delaware C Corp that can pay you just like any other remote employee, even if your title is CEO or CTO, that already does a lot for you. It makes it a lot easier for US capital to invest in you, while the cost of like, you know, getting a $25,000 seed investment from, from a small angel here in the United States, that's prohibitively expensive for the angel to do the due diligence and figure out how to invest, even, you know, in a very Western German SMBH, Gesellschaft mit beschränkter Haftung. It's just very hard for them to do that. But if you incorporate as a Delaware C Corp and then you take money from US investors, you're basically already a Silicon Valley startup. Like you have the right lawyers, you have the right structure, you're still needing some network connections. But I think you're actually a lot closer to startups. So I think that's interesting. You're, you're, you're not too different. So I think. I, I don't, I can't tell you exactly. I think time will tell. People will run those experiments. I want to run those experiments. I can't tell you exactly if that's enough. I think there's definitely cultural factors. A lot of European founders think more small, like not super aggressive about expanding into the market. I think that's also got to do with like all the local investors they talk to who've never, I mean, some of the most prolific investors in Europe I've basically never seen a company go from nothing to a billion dollars. They don't expect those kind of returns. And so they don't make decisions based on, they're not optimizing for that. They want immediate revenues. They push founders for doing, you know, they would want, if Twitter had been a European company, they would have pushed for ads when it had like a couple hundred thousand users. So I think if you can get the founders early enough, get them the right investors and, and, and enable them to actually think in a way where it's like, no, capital will be there and you can grow and it will be capital that pushes you to grow, not to monetize. I think there is a chance that you could build a big company in Europe. Does that make you long Europe, short Silicon Valley? I don't think it makes me short Silicon Valley. I think, I think Silicon Valley, like put it another way, like, I think Microsoft started growing for a really long time, even after, you know, the, the intelligentsia kind of decided, you know, yeah. MacBooks are much cooler. So I, I don't think like Silicon Valley, shorting Silicon Valley is prudent. I just don't know if, if for investors it actually makes quite as much sense unless you already have that mega brand to really focus there because you would really have to find something there that other people overlook. So like, like I feel like for the longest time in investment, it was about, well, there was definitely a time when you could just spray and pray and not so many went in, people went into entrepreneurship and it was kind of good enough. I think at this point, there's so much, so many people who 
tell the right story, I think it might shift again where you actually have to find a company that might not, you know, right. Most investors want to invest in a company that is going to succeed regardless of them. That's definitely not the case in Europe. That's often not the case in biotech where you might actually have to help with putting the executive team together after, because the founders who came up with the technology might not have the industry experience to actually make it big. So I'm really interested in all those industries where you actually actively have to make the difference. Why are you interested in those industries? Because you can have an unfair advantage there? Or? Exactly. The hard part, as with any investment strategy, is you don't know for many years if your strategy actually works, right? So there's no guarantee that you can help European companies actually succeed in a big way. And you need them to succeed in a big way, as you know, for the whole investment model to work out. But if you could, you would have a very, very deep unfair advantage, especially if you know the area, you know the language, you know where to find those people, right? So like part of the pessimism I see in, in, in Europe from like big investors who come from the US who have no local experience is the kind of companies they find are the kind of companies local investors would invest into. They don't realize that there's like among these 500 million people, there's a lot of people that just don't have that kind of credibility in Europe because people, you know, the government innovation agencies, the investors who are often coming from like marketing and finance, they don't come from actual, you know, product or engineering. They just don't recognize the kind of talent that would build a Silicon Valley company. So if you're relying on the official channels to meet uh, companies in Europe, you're going to find very, very boring companies for the most part. So the biology, uh, Patrick Friedman view of sort of your know, charter cities. Do you have any? Uh, do you overlap with that view pretty entirely, or is there, do you have any differences for you know that sort of uh, view and what it represents? I, I think it's a. I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, I think it would be really cool to run that experiment. I'm super supportive of running those experiments and just seeing what happens if if we could give people the freedom to experiment a little bit more with governance. But the other side of it is I'm not convinced that you really fully need all of that. I, I'm going a little bit more with the sovereign uh, individual hypothesis here to some degree. If, if my company, and, and I'm not all the way in actually, you know, to like it needs to be on the blockchain and like Bitcoin and no one knows who the creators are. I think there's this middle ground that I see happening a little bit sooner where the founder sits in Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, Russia, and is building a company that is actually incorporated as a Delaware C-Corp and doesn't necessarily even sell to a local market. You know, maybe, maybe that company sitting in Eastern Europe might be selling to, to Central Europe and the US and maybe Australia and is not bothering with some of the smaller markets or the local markets where the regulation is just overbearing. Yeah. Uh, unpack the sovereign individual thesis for for our audience, even just you know, the high level, and then uh, I'm curious how you think about that, that in in light of a world where China becomes the global superpower, where it's yeah you know, <laughs> isn't super <laughs> sovereign individual uh, focused. Yeah, so I I don't know if I can super well summarize it, but I'll I'll give it a try. So in general, I think the core takeaway that I that I got from from this book and and discussion around it is that the structure of, of power really heavily shapes everything around us. So, or the structure of violence, I think it's even like, it's, it's on the level of like, if, if the value in a country is 
in the natural resources, then it might make sense to invade that country. If the value is, you know, in, in, in the people, then it might go, make sense to invade that country. But when a lot of like the capital is actually in, in very hyper mobile intellectuals that can move, that are very flexible, then it might suddenly not, you might not capture a lot of wealth if you go to a country where the people will just move away if you try to invade, right? Uh, and if the companies are mostly virtual and their manufacturing can shift around, right, the more we standardize how, how production works and prototyping, a lot of the value just actually flows towards individuals. I think to some degree we're seeing that, seeing that partially beginning with like digital nomadism going up so much. There's these people who can work from anywhere, work on anything, spend anywhere. I think we're seeing it increasingly with uh, this whole influencer movement, which is really decentralizing away from basically all the existing authorities, like in, especially in the influencer space, right? I think right now to be an archaeologist, you need a degree from a, from a university, but I don't know if, if we won't see like, you know, a 16-year-old kid in the next couple of years just starting to show up with a GoPro at like some digs interviewing the experts and along the way by learning from them while having building a following of a couple hundred thousand people interested in archaeology, becoming both an expert and an influencer in that space. So I think the sovereign individual hypothesis is just the, the power is shifting back to the individuals. Is that really what we're seeing? Well, on another, on another level, we're definitely seeing very strong counter trends of Governments trying to control speech, governments uh, trying to uh, build boundaries around their zones of speech. So it, it, it's going to be an interesting battle about sense making by how information flows, who creates that information. But I think overall, the trend still is that individuals not have more power now than they used to have in the past. And, and, and you mentioned sense making, that sort of a term that is sort of blowing up right now or, or has been. I think reality, truth, your sense making. How do you expect that to to evolve? Like, how, how is that going to play out? I think it's 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 super it's super unclear. I mean, I basically think we have these mega choke points right now where people get their information from. But we've also had these choke points in the past, right? In the past, uh, the media, like the press, was a very very central choke point. You had a little bit of like the gossip network but across large distances and, and letters and people traveling and, and spreading rumors work from person to person, but that was slow compared to the press, right? The moment we got the printing press and then we got newspapers and so on, those people were controlling the news. So we've had that for a while. So in a, in, in a way now we have like Twitter, Facebook and other entities centrally controlled which is kind of actually leading to, to interesting counter pushes. Like I, I think really the lead, the place to look apart from, and we've talked a little bit about this, Eric, you and I talked a little bit about uh, pseudonymous communication networks. I mean, I think there's technology that could be built in this space, but if you really want to look what people actually want, I think you've got to look at generation C, like just the people who are like in their teens right now, because they do stuff like they use Instagram and create, Things like Finstagrams, where they create an account that follows no one, is followed by no one, and they just use it as a shared account, share the password among each other, and they post things there using pseudonyms and small groups of like 10 or 12, very image meme heavy to discuss all the things adults tell them they shouldn't be talking about. 
And so I, pe people are working around the system already. There's private Telegram groups. There's private WhatsApp groups. I mean, I, I don't know if, if the genie can really be contained. I don't think our current systems are dealing too well. I don't think our regulatory system is really super smart about it. I think cracking down on speech might backfire heavily because it's going to fragment things. Yeah, it's not clear to me how it's going to turn out. I think we're really on a juncture here on whether we're getting like free speech or, you know, a top-down control system where you get rewarded for saying the right thing, which I don't think can work in the long term. I don't know. One way to look at this whole collective consciousness of humans on this planet is literally as a big collective consciousness. And each of us, we get experiences and information directly, like we're the leaves of this tree of information. And we just have more information locally to make decisions about our purchases, about our opinions, that someone far away. So I think any kind of centrally controlled narrative just really breaks down because it's not a very effective collective intelligence. Is it possible that some societies are still going to try to attempt this super top-down view where you get punished for saying things that they think you shouldn't be saying, even though they might be true? Yeah, I think it's possible it happens. I don't know that it's actually long-term going to be sustainable, but a lot of bad things can happen in the meanwhile. Eric Weinstein had this tweet last week basically saying that the marketplace for ideas, you know, the idea behind that, that sort of good ideas rise up and the, and the bad ideas lose it, uh, is actually not, not what happens. It's more that the ideas that are, you know, sort of more genetically fit or something rise. The ideas that are, you know, more memeable rise, you know, regardless of how, or that doesn't always correlate with how good or, or bad they are. And it's our job to help determine the difference. What do you think of that I, statement and how do we do that, <laughs> if that's true? I, no, I, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, we, we, I think we have that problem that uh, we have a narrative bias, as I call it. So, like, the, the, the best story is the thing that just spreads. And I see this in a lot of fields. Like, I think, for example, this is something that often doesn't make me friends because so many of my friends work in that industry. But, like, I think this is something that we have in AI, for example, very strongly, where it's just, like, making the most outrageous claims about, like, how soon and how crazy AI is going to be. It just is so much more interesting than someone going into like, you know, talking about Kolmogorov complexity of like, you know, general limitations of machine learning. There's a paper in the 1990s, even in the 1990s, it got barely any attention. Other people who talked about limitations of, or I would say more thorough approaches to like AI got completely swamped out by the people who were promising we'll have machine learning in five years. So there's this inflation of terms, right? From like automated statistics, machine learning, AI, and like now everything is AI because everything just has to move upstream and make ever more outrageous claims of how fast and close everything is. There's very little uh, incentive for someone to really push the other way. There's very little incentive for someone to really tear down unless you're if you take cryptocurrency it's kind of similar I and mean, there are people who are partisan to their specific cryptocurrency but it's there's very little incentive overall for if people weren't part of the bitcoin maximalism camp there would be even less incentive for them to speak uh, in a negative way about any of the other coins in nuclear fusion it's a similar thing there's people who wrote the paper 
there's a, there's a guy, Todd H. Ryder, who was uh, at MIT. I think his thesis was in 1995. He wrote a paper about Bremsstrahlung, which re breaking radiation, which set very specific boundaries on which kind of nuclear fusion designs are actually viable. And he basically left the field after his thesis. He left physics essentially. And then a couple of years, decades later, he came back in biotech. I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on physics or nuclear fusion, but it makes me think if the guy who actually writes the paper that everyone is fighting against, that's saying it's very hard and many of the designs don't work, completely leaves the field afterwards, while people are still proposing like uh, polywell and fuser designs that supposedly have been declared impossible by this paper, it makes me think. Is this field just so complex that people willing to fund it just keep funding it despite the experts having left? Has this field kind of become a zombie field? And are, are, does that partially mean the more you fund it, that it actually gets harder to really truly try new ideas in that field? Because we know that fusion is possible if we look at the sun. But is it possible for the field overall to just get stuck into, in something because the real experts have left the field? Let's go deep on the on the AI path. So, you know, if everyone else is worried about you know AGI or or you know less than that, just loss of jobs and, and total automation, what do you think is is truly misunderstood or underappreciated about what's actually going on in AI, and what should the actual concerns be? Right. Uh, so Andrew Ng, uh, who's like I think he started Coursera. He was teaching machine learning at Stanford. Was involved at, with the Google Autonomous Car Project arguably one of the top experts, he said, we don't really have a good path to even understand how we would build AGI. Right now, worrying about it is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. There's some really cool papers on Kolmogorov complexity that I really appreciate that go into why it's hard. It's just a three-page paper. But essentially, I think it's interesting to, if you assume for a second that general, like we're getting cool AI, we're getting self-driving cars, we're getting those things where we're not getting full general AGI immediately, what are the consequences of that? Well, first thing you have to ask yourself, if we're just getting this gradual progress and not a full replacement of, uh, a full replacement of humans right away, what does that mean? I think uh, this is something that uh, Peter Thiel said recently. The fear that people have about AGI in that context is, what if there was a robot that could do everything you can do, but cheaper, right? What would do that, do that to your job, to your purpose in life, to all those things? And the way he put it is, uh, well, that already exists, and it's called Chinese. They're doing everything you can do, but cheaper. So I dug a little bit into statistics on automation, trying to figure out, has there ever been a job loss to robots to automation in the US of any considerable amount? Has there been incredible productivity growth that just uh, left humans behind? And I couldn't find the net job loss from the 50s, basically to until 2000. There's a really interesting report that basically says uh, we had a 30% job loss in 2000 to 2010, which was while a big crisis happened. Uh, financial crisis happened, but uh, also 25% of the factories closed at the same time. 
So if this, there's never been a place where the job loss didn't correlate with a loss of factories and robots need a place to work too. So the much more likely scenario actually is the jobs did not get lost to the automation. The jobs get lost to outsourcing the places that had lower labor cost. And if that's the case, I think it's, it's, uh, automation is actually helpful in retaining jobs in the West because automation allows local workers to be more productive, even at higher wage rates. And that can, can keep them competitive with other places. If you don't have an automation advantage, then you're really just purely competing on labor cost, and clearly the jobs go somewhere else. You know, you're, uh, I think, something of, a, of an Austrian economist. Definitely, definitely inspired by the Austrian school. Yeah. Do you see that view? You know, the view is somewhat fringe, although you know, rising because of Bitcoin and stuff. And, and fringe, I mean, just a minority, minority view. How do you see that? Do you think that that will become mainstream in the next hundred years or, or will it always be fringe? Like, how, how do you see that, that view of economics evolving? I don't know. I think I, economics is in a really, is in a really weird state because, uh, again, this, it's just very full of like narrative bias. There's just a lot of things that are interesting to tell and interesting to get into power and be retold. I think it's very much at the whim of that. It's not necessarily what is true gets popular. I think if you ask Actual economists, like simple questions like why are some countries poor and other countries rich? I don't think the answers would be very satisfying, right? So like, I think like if, if you want to actually do economic policy based on the field of economics, you need to understand how can it be? And this might be slightly political contentious for some people, but I just think it's a crazy case study. Like, how can it be that Israel, like a relatively young country around 50 years old, like is so wealthy right now while other places are poor. How can it be that Venezuela was so rich at one point, right? It's like kind of understand how did the U S become such a powerful nation? People always kind of cherry pick, you know, they say it's like uh, embargoes or like they pick something, but overall I think what's, what's fascinating to me is when, when basically monkeys became humans at some point in history every place on earth was in abject poverty, right? So like wealth is not something that existed and just got redistributed. Wealth can be created very much so. And I think if you really like start digging in and you start understanding, well, if someone digs a well or someone builds a house out of wood, a shelter, that is wealth to humans. That is, that is something that's useful. Or if you make improvements in agriculture, that's an improvement. And so after a little while, you kind of realize we're not... Like the difference between countries is often actually just in our ability to organize, like to build streets, to build houses, to create food, to create most of the things that make us happy as humans. We have abundance of rocks and dirt and dirt to grow things in. And we have access to water if we sometimes have to purify it. But mostly it's just organizing labor in a system, right? So it's all about the technology that then allows us to create wealth. If, if you don't understand why some places are poor and why some people are rich, uh, some places are rich, it's, I think it's very, very hard to build a good society. But I don't think that's really the kind of narrative that makes people become successful as econ- economists in academia or in government research institutions or in any of the other places where you would hire or pay or print in newspapers an economist. 
So how do we solve these, these fields that have sort of these perverse incentives or, or these fields that are zombie, zombie fields? That's, a, that's the trillion dollar question. <laughs> I think partially this whole sense making that you, that you mentioned earlier, like I think partially it's just kind of reducing, reducing the scale on which we interact with each other is necessary. And, the, and I, what I mean with that is people often, t- echo chambers was kind of the term before sense making. People are worried about being like in a bubble or in an echo chamber uh, and, and they want to hear everything and they don't like it when those platforms filter. But the problem with that is if everyone in the world was part of the same communication system and everyone sees the same thing, right? It's not filtered. Everyone sees everything. Well, then you're basically, there's more of some things than of others. So you're basically, if, if, if I give you a Twitter feed that's completely unfiltered and it's everyone in the entire world, it's, you can't even follow specific people. You're just, the things you're going to quote unquote randomly see are the more popular things. So that's groupthink. If you have one original idea, well, that's also an echo chamber. Like it's just you. If you talk with two or three friends and you guys all talk, uh, have similar ideas, that's an echo chamber. So whether you talk with everyone or just with yourself, you're still in an echo chamber. So the question then becomes, if you want diversity of thought, you want different ideas, you can't fully escape some people having certain set of ideas. You can't completely get rid of echo chambers. What you need is you need a diversity of echo chambers. You need different echo chambers. You need, and then you need ideas. They need to be kind of semi, semi-permeable. So like if you talk with some friends about some ideas about economics and I talk with friends about different ones and we have one friend in common who's kind of in the middle and sometimes uh, kind of ferries some information between of those of two, two groups, some people might actually switch over into the other group. Right At that point, you're kind of getting something that's really much closer to how our brain operates. And I was hoping we could do that very effectively with algorithms for a while. So I, like, I deeply looked into reputation algorithms and algorithms for like, basically using humans of neuro- for, as, as kind of neurons in a communication network like that. I think that's very, very hard to build from scratch. I think it's hard to retrofit on existing networks. So now I'm kind of thinking maybe it will happen initially in a different way where we're just becoming more insular on the level of creating these private communication groups. Like, meaning I think it might not be solved in, in software. It might so- be solved in wetware where we're really just building new groups like of, of uh, societies, private chat rooms, and just kind of approximate that, that stuff. And I think the whole influencer movement might go into that direction too. So you might not get all your information from CNN or Fox, but you might actually get it from some 22-year-old kid who runs around with a camera. Maybe that's better if not everyone listens to the same 22-year-old kid or you even have a few different ones. And then you can kind of start losing interest in one and move over to the other and you tell others and you move them with you. Because in a way that's a collective, like if, if you heard about something cool and told me and I watched that too and then I tell my friends we're all moving over, that is collective sense making, right? Because you influenced us to move a certain direction and it has this ripple effect down. That would be really collective intelligence. I think, would it be cool if we could push that using algorithms or if we even took the humans controlling it out of the equation by putting it on the blockchain? Sure. 
having worked on other algorithms, I think it's very, very hard. So maybe it will start happening using wetware first. Yeah. So let, let's get deeper into that. So you, you said you, you were, you know, you've been working on sort of reputation currency as early as 2003. You were, you were thinking about sort of reputation. Uh, and then you, just, you spent the, uh, some of the last few years you know, working on sort of an identity project that you were sort of alluding to. Well, when you talk about how you see uh, the future of identity and reputation evolving, uh, are we going to be pseudonymous uh, on the internet? Uh, are we going to have multiple identities? What's that kind of look like, whether in wetware or, or in digitally? I mean, I think, okay, so like, I looked into pseudonyms also in terms of history. And what I found really interesting was apparently in the United States constitutional debates, over 130 pseudonyms were in use to discuss, you know, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, like basically discussing how to set up this country. People were heavily depending on pseudonyms to, to protect themselves from like essentially the mob. And interestingly enough, many of those people who used pseudonyms were very powerful people even who had still had to protect themselves. So I've read that George Washington had a net worth that is equivalent today would be today inflation adjusted about 500 million. Thomas Jefferson had like a net worth of about 200 million. So even these powerful people had to protect themselves behind pseudonyms and kind of the analog to today is to a large degree. I think a lot of people, especially actually people who have a lot to lose are probably not willing to actually say what they think or you see this also in politicians even. A lot of politicians are not willing to actually go on debates with someone who might be a skilled debater who has a different opinion. I think it really deprives the collective sense-making of seeing those debates, right? If you never have a debate on like issues of our time, because everyone is just uh, saying their talking points, but avoiding as dearestly as they can from saying what they actually either think, really think, or even having a debate about it. Sense-making is very, very hard for everyone. So I think this affects even people who are less important, right? Having a truthful debate about some of the things that are dear to you is very, very difficult because someone for sure is going to attack you. So one view you could have is that we people will just start using pseudonyms again to discuss difficult topics. I think that's already starting. I think partially... Uh, Satoshi really like kicked that off by basically realizing that creating like an alternative to the existing financial system would be something where could be persecuted for. I think the other alternative is basically that this just goes so ridiculous that people increasingly become desensitized and partially people might also just achieve independence from effective persecution at some point by becoming sovereign individuals to some degree. I think it's a difficult juncture. It's definitely, I think it's definitely not easy to speak your mind. And, and with speaking your mind, I don't even mean preaching that you think you have the, the gospel of truth, but more on the level of saying, you know, I think there's a problem here and this is not working. Why don't we try this? And knowing that you might be wrong, but you can actually learn from someone refuting you. But at this point, right, we're at a point where if you say something that's wrong, or maybe it's even right, some people don't try to refute you, but they actually try to get you destroyed. And 
I think that's just a very, very difficult juncture for a democracy that really, really thrives on discussion and conversation, right? So like, like even if the people who you disagree with say things that you don't want them to say because you think they're bad, you're kind of better off if they say them and you have an opportunity to refute and educate them. So I don't know where that's going. I, I definitely see that the reaction kids have, and that's always where I look to for the future, because I think they're a lot more media smart than even, you know, people in their 20s. Kids found their solution by just creating like small pseudonymous enclaves that they keep hidden from everyone, including their parents. So, you know, Balaji had this vision of, or has this vision of, you know, separating your earning name from your speaking name so that, yeah, basically, you know, so you could say what you want and people could attack you, but that wouldn't, you know, correspond with, with your ability to earn, you know, or, or even, you know, come back in a, in a different name. I think it I think it's interesting. I think it's just hard for humans. Like if you if you look at we we have examples of like people being forced into such a situation. I I, I don't know if that's it's not quite the example I'm looking for, but it's just because because it's in a very different. But I think for example, take the take the Dread Pirate Roberts and Silk Road. I think it's just very hard to run like something that an operation of that scale without being able to show off to anyone that you're building something cool like that, right? So in this case, it's a, it's a bit more difficult because that was against the law. But like, I think in other cases, let's say you are like a big name saying something that you find interesting in the sphere of, I don't know what. I think it's, it's just hard for people to separate those two things. Like, I think, I think it's just speech is such an inherently social thing that you want to connect with other people and have those people be in your life. I don't know that that's a good long-term solution. I think in the short term, you can do it. If you go the other way and you say you use your real name to say what you think and you just kind of have your companies privately, I think that can work a lot better. If you, if you can just decouple your, like if you have like a search engine optimization business and it's not attached to your real name, then you can use your real name to say what you think. I think that might work for some people. I don't know. I might, my hope right now is just that uh, it will kind of burn itself out eventually. Like that, like basically the outrage culture that we have now will just at some point become too absurd and it will renormalize. But that might take years or decades. I think, I think I'm kind of hoping that Gen Z is not going to be quite as susceptible to all this outrage because they're just constantly surrounded by it uh, since birth. It, it is interesting. I wonder, you know, if, I mean, if it's, I wonder when it will go, because it, it seems like a very conscious, or if not conscious, like, it seems to be working for the people, for people, like, it seems to be elevated, like, someone gets more powerful because of it, right? <laughs> or some, like, views get proposed more because of it. And as a result, why would it and how could it stop? Like, you know? I think it's 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 difficult because the, the people who already have the lives they kind of want in some form have like less incentive to really speak up and fight uh, like in, in, you know, this culture war or whatever people have called it. And people who kind of want power can really utilize outrage. And I think this is really happening across the political spectrum. You know, it's just easy for any, like you can get outraged about anything anywhere. I think it's happened in the past. The question is just, you know, how well does it actually work? Are people just going to burn out and like switch to 
more local media. Like, I think that that's really like if the media, like if, if it becomes less centralized, like if the power law breaks a little bit and people actually just talk more locally. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to tell. I think neither pseudonym, I think pseudonyms are interesting to some degree, but I think they just don't strongly fulfill that social need that people have to actually connect with the people. It's not even that think like them, but that have enough in common with them that they can have a good conversation with them. It's just very hard if someone has like super opposing views and you're on Twitter, you're kind of forced to shout into this world where you can't just talk with the people who are somewhat of a different opinion than you. You have to talk with the people who are radically different opinion from you. And and it's just not, it's not very conducive. It's much easier, you know, to convince me of something that's close to what I already think, but slightly different. And over time, I might change my mind completely as I drift away. But getting me to the radical opposite of what I believe right now, I think that's just going to be, it's it's not how, how human sense making on an individual level works. Totally. Is any other learnings worth sharing from, from October about, about reputation, about identity or on the web? I think it's hard. Like, I think at this point, people are really, really overloaded with content. I think I broke like, with that startup and I knowingly did this. I thought we, 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 we'd find an edge, but I knowingly broke a lot of like, the rules of what I thought how to do a startup well. I think it's just hard. Even if you have a good algorithmic solution, I think we did. You just still need to focus on the market first. And, and the way I see it right now, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not incredibly optimistic right now about solving those things unless you can really do it from the inside of somewhere like Twitter, Facebook, Reddit. And I'm, I'm not sure that the will is really there in those organizations. I think it might just take a little while. What we, what we might be getting instead is like some society level learning and i think the most important thing in the meanwhile is to probably just preserve the ability basically to keep the regulation away long enough and far enough that people can organize themselves in 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 smaller groups until we kind of find a better way to organize these big sense making systems i I think it's just going to take time i think it's too early yeah so if not reputation uh, going back to our question about uh, zombie fields, are there other areas that you would reform uh, academia or or even just the broader meta problem of, uh, what would you call it? Occam's yeah. bikini is like, Occam's razor is right. The simple solution is like, the simple explanation is the most likely one. Uh, Occam's bikini is the one that you, the, the explanation that you should publish is the one that is sexiest. So like, it's narrative bias again. So I, I, I don't know, like, I think a lot of like these fields basically suffer from like heavy, heavy over-centralization and often like we, like, it always comes back, like, how can we get better governance? And the only real solution that both in, basically, I just take a lot of inspiration from biology and biology always finds the solution to these kind of problems of how do I get it right? Like, how do I get my governance and distributing the funds right? The answer is usually decentralization, like just having multiple competing copies, competition, right? Having multiple different investors that are competing with each other with like, is, is the work. So any kind of like, how do we make government better? Well, we run multiple separate experiments. Academia, healthcare, a lot of those areas that also become overregulated, it just reduces the amount of different ways you can do the same thing. 
it's often sounds very beneficial on a surface. It is beneficial to like regulate something like, let's say like a hospital exactly, or like an insurance company, exactly how it needs to do things. But the downside is I can't start a new insurance company that does things radically differently. So innovation basically like, it's almost like you envelop the status quo, you make it as good as possible, the status quo, but you envelop it in amber, amber, and um, nothing new can be tried that's radically different. And that's very good for, for that level, but you just, that, that frozen in time thing just looks increasingly anachronistic in compared to everything else where progress still happens, right? So all these really heavily regulated fields, they feel so antiquated to us because everything else has moved forward. They're frozen in time. Totally. And speaking of, uh, of time, you mentioned earlier how you would, um, you look to the youth for what's going to happen in the future. You know, some people look to the, to the old people. <laughs> how, how do you think about uh, youth versus, uh, a nicer way to say old people, I'm sure, uh, um, to uh, you know, uh, the more experienced in terms of what's going to happen in the future? Well, I think the, the youth is uh, easy to manipulate to some degree. They definitely lack information. I think have, having looked into like how learning happens, learning is generally, whether you talk about AI or in humans, it's bounded by how much information you have. So if you, if you want to learn more, you need more data. Well, in a lot of like ways, youth lack data, partially also because we just sent them to institutions that basically... We call them learning institutions, but really we're just putting them on ice there to not learn, like like schools. So they just lack experience. But if they are actually faced with real problems, it can also be an advantage to not have to do it in a specific way. So like all their social media use, where where they're not, they have a need to communicate with their friends and do sense making. I think they probably come up with better solutions than the old people simply because they're not caught in the existing system. But for other things where you just put them in a, in a chain, like political opinions, opinions about economics, all of those things, right? They're just very often, sadly, we, I mean, this applies to adults too, right? Many, like, not many people could actually explain why one economic policy is better than another or why one party has a better idea about X but a worse idea about Y. I mean, Partially, that's also we don't have those debates. They can't even listen to other people discussing it, right? So all you get is the ta- talking points from your team versus the other team. So I don't know. I think at some point, experience might just stack up and older people might become less trustful of those institutions because they just see that falls apart. But I don't think that's in- inherently necessary. For one, I don't think it happens in most old people either. They're still stuck in their ways. And I don't think that's something that kids couldn't learn. So I'm very, very bullish on young people. So, and, and talk more about influencers in particular. You th- other people think that they're overrated, but you think that they're underhyped for, for culture, for business. Yeah, like, I, I definitely. I mean, you know, there was a survey recently where they asked, I think it was a repeat survey the last time they asked that a couple decades ago. Every kid wanted to be an astronaut and kind of like, you know, now they all want to be influencers. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, this is like so crazy overhyped. Everyone just, you know, everyone wants to be a superstar. Everyone wants to be an NBA player. Everyone wants to be, you know, uh, an actor. And it's just not realistic for everyone to become that. But 
I, th I get that, but then I look at the other side, and I think in most of the fields, and, and the reason I think it's still underhyped is because the people who really want that, they're really, really young. They don't have quite as much in most cases to share. They might develop something that they can share where they can be really good. But uh, if you look to existing power centers, whether it's in academia or things like venture capital, a lot of people find it actually very icky to run around with a selfie stick and, you know, share authentically what's happening in their lives with the world. So I basically think this kind of like disdain for putting yourself out there instead of just, you know, writing like more dignified tweets and tweets weren't dignified at some point because you wrote essays and before that it was books. And, you know, like I think everyone wanting to be dignified actually keeps a lot of the existing the people with really interesting perspectives knowledge positions out of becoming influencers right now they don't need it they have other means to be heard so i think there's a lot of opportunity for just people to storm into those fields like the example i gave with like some young kid interested in archaeology might have a better shot at becoming like a really successful archaeologist by just showing up to digs maybe being lucky to have one like some finding near them where they can charm their way in by being a kid with like a little GoPro. I think there, there's part of us that wants to think a kid with a GoPro can become like quote unquote a journalist or something like someone who's just reporting about it. But I think that ignores the reality that someone who's actually going to the places and asking the questions of the experts and hanging out with them and maybe even being able to, ha to help out and engaging with followers online, which opens new opportunities to travel to other places and learn more, that person might actually become simultaneously an influencer and an expert, right? We don't want that to be the case. We want the fairness there. You can't, you know, be good at this and that, but that's just not what the world works. Often there's winner takes all dynamics. Like if you, if you are able to control the sense making around the subject and you're you know, you're naturally blessed with enough intelligence that you can really understand it, but you're going to learn from all the experts that you meet. So you might actually become an expert much faster than if you just spend all this time sitting in school and then college. Yeah. So I think it's undervalued. Yeah, this guy, uh, James, I actually call him ISA James, uh, although I should, I should use his last name. I just know him on Twitter. Well, now he's an EIR at uh, on deck and he's a, a great kid. He's 18 years old. Maybe be seventeen. I don't know. Uh, but he's uh, he's publicly traded, and I couldn't be publicly like he has people invest in him and make decisions based on like. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. That's super cool. He has investors. Yeah. Yes. I, he's he's fascinating. He's on cutting edge, and he can get away with it because he's young. Like I I couldn't do that at thirty. Like it, it would be too weird. Like my investors, my my LPs would look at me funny. Like I don't know. I might even be blackballed or something. Like it, it's just too weird. But as a kid, you could do weird stuff. And people are like, oh, he's just being a kid. Or she's just being a kid. Right. He's also more knowledgeable about IS income share agreements than I am. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he is an expert. Like he, he's just picked a topic that's new, gone super deep in it, is also a practitioner, you know, by being, and maybe he's a world expert at like 17, 18. I mean, it's really fascinating. That's exactly, yeah, it's super fascinating. And I, I believe it. I mean, if you're passionate about something and on top of that, you're seeking out the other people who are already interesting, of course, you're going to become an expert. So I think it's undervalued. And I think it's massively undervalued in all of those fields where there's established people. I think some of those established people will try to defect, but 
I mean, you're seeing a lot of like venture funds having podcasts now. I think the next step is some of them are already starting to put out video. But my take on that is I think it will be hard for them to do it authentically because what people want to see is not venture fund X. Not that some of these podcasts are not amazing, but what people actually are more interested in is personality, person X. Who is that person? What are they actually interested in? Not what are they doing to make the company they work for look good? Right. But what are they interesting, interested in? What's going on in their life? So like, I think the whole format of like podcasting, video casting, there's just so much also stylistically, like just the whole setup, like just two people sitting in a room, there could be so much more action in that whole thing. Like, it, you know, I, an interview could almost be much more closer to like an Anthony Bourdain episode almost, right? Yeah. Where you go get food with someone and have an experience and then you compress that right down into two minutes. That experience that you've had with that person while asking an interesting question. So I think there's going to be so much happening in that space. And then there's going to be a whole set of people getting jobs, training people in how to make good video, how to make, how to manage the audio, how to do the camera, how to, what's a gimbal, how do you use a gimbal, how do you use a gimbal with a camera? I think this whole field is going to explode like crazy. Yeah. Who, who wins as a result of that? YouTube, like who, what, what, what implications emerge from that or result from that? Well, I, okay, what I find, okay, this, this goes straight into like actually monetization. Right now, the one part where monetization for social media works really well is video. Like YouTube does it. I think you can even monetize video on, on Twitter and on Facebook as well. But there's monetization, I mean, for the creators actually. But on the other hand, if I'm on Twitter and, you know, someone is on Twitter and has like a couple hundred thousand followers, that person is actually creating ad revenue for Twitter indirectly because people are on Twitter because of the value that person creates using their tweets. But right now they need to directly monetize so they can post the link to the t-shirts they created or the cups they made, or they can directly monetize, but their non-video tweets, they can't have monetized in a way where they get a revenue share from that. Right? So right now, I guess if it moves to video in that space, it already works. But I think, so I think it will be good for those platforms. I don't know how strong their lock-in will really be. I think people might be more flexible than they expect. So we'll see how the platforms there change with, with just the needs and demands of the users. Creators will go where they can make money off the users for the most part, or where they can have an audience. I think that kind of monetization actually, I think that's, that's in social media, that's, for non-video, that's actually an unsolved part too. It's kind of crazy that there's people who create this much value for Twitter and Twitter is not able to do a revenue share with them. Instead, they have to go off platform and, and monetize in other ways, right? Like in, in anything someone has to do that's actually about monetization, like I think the platforms should do most of the monetization or at least should do enough of the monetization that unless you want to do a product or something, you don't have to because you can make money from just having an audience. I don't know. Like, I think the real beneficiaries will be the consumers who have much, many more different sources for the same kind of content, just different voices and views, just much higher diversity, plurality of views, and the creators. Because I think there's, if you right now do a camera tutorial where you just show people how to attach, I don't know, a nice microphone to a Zoom recorder for a podcasting setup 
you can make a lot of money from the referral links, right? There's just so many people who will make a living of just teaching people how to do things. On that note, if, if, if the world could learn anything from what you know about how, how to learn or how to study or how to teach, uh, if you could impart anything that you've learned in those areas, what would you impart? I think, I, I think learning is interesting because it's really mainly about uh, iterations. I ran this experiment. I was uh, I, I, long time ago now. I learned this game, uh, Game of Go, that recently got popular because of AlphaGo. And I started teaching it to people on a very regular basis. So I taught it to lots and lots and lots of people. And it was really interesting to me to teach it because you could see some people learned much faster than others. And the main thing that I saw in the people who learned fast, they were not outcome sensitive. So some people, they were thinking for two minutes on their first move. They were trying to be smart. And you don't have a lot of information to base that thinking on. So that didn't work well for the people who were trying to think smart or who were trying to look good. The people who did best did two things. They mainly, one, they really tried to copy the teacher. They were not trying to be innovative for being innovative sake. Like they were just trying to do almost the same thing and they were really, really fast. They did no thinking. And the upside of that is you just get a lot of data. I've applied the same thing to learning poker played a lot with a lot of these games because I'm like, how do I increase that data rate? So with one thing I've done yesterday and today actually was I want to learn how to jump out of a plane, how to skydive. And I was like, if I do one jump out of a plane, that gives me one minute of free fall. So I can have one minute to learn about how to move my body in the air as I move towards the ground. And then I go to uh, pull the parachute and the free flight is over. So I get one minute for this whole jump with everything that involves with flying up there, down, packing up the, the canopy afterwards, like so much work. Uh, yesterday and today, I was in an indoor skydiving place and I spent 45 minutes each day in free fall. So I got basically the equivalent of 90 uh, jumps in two days. So that's really the key. I think if you want to learn fast, whatever it is, you need to find a way to increase the rate of acquiring data. This is true of machine learning, but it's definitely also true of humans. If you find a way, if you find any kind of trick or cheat that you can increase the speed at which you're acquiring data, that your pattern matching engine, your in intuition uh, has access to data it can interpret, you're going to learn faster. It'd be an interesting, uh, you know, because venture capitalists are trying to you know, get data, or maybe they're not trying to get data if they're <laughs> trying to hide out, you know, how good they are or how not good they are. But yeah, the feedback loops are long. The feedback loops are long, right? So that's, that's why I think people could actually benefit from doing things like poker and go, because if your intuition is like bad in those fields, you know what I mean? If you're not tuning or calibrating your intuition in the fields where you have really fast uh, feedback loops, this is, this is resting on the assumption that there's at least some trans, transference learning. But if you're not learning to calibrate your intuition, I think it's really, really hard to calibrate your intuition in, in a field that has such long feedback loops. I would highly recommend for any VC to really learn things like go and poker and even skydiving. Like the more you do learning, learning, learning radically as much languages, dance, anything you can, I think the better you should be at making predictions if transference learning is a real thing, which I don't know an experimental setup for, but I just think it is. 
if you get better at calibrating yourself, you will make better predictions. Yeah. In, in, the, uh, in the last few minutes here, I'm curious to just ask you, what are your most contrarian ideas? Because you struck me as a true contrarian that, that you'd be willing to share. Oh, that's a difficult question. I, I, well, I think AI is definitely one of them that, that I don't think it's as close and as dangerous as people think. Yeah, I don't think uh, automation is killing all the jobs. We, 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 we discussed that before. Like, I, I think there's actually, I can go actually into that a little bit more because I think it's important. I think it's kind of crazy. We have the lowest unemployment we've had in 60 years right now. And the indicators are basically we don't have any resources to deploy towards, you know, cleaning up needles and poop from our city streets. I think we have a lot of indicators that we couldn't build really, really big projects right now. We have really low unemployment and we're worried about like automation killing all the jobs. So I think, I think that's controversial, but it's also like just that's the data, right? So like it basically means we don't have enough capital to be able to afford all the things we could be doing because if we had all this extra capital that people don't have jobs, well, then we should be building a Hyperloop tunnel network under the U.S. We should be cleaning up all those things. We run out of things to clean, streets to clean up in, in the U.S., and like trash and pollution, then we should start cleaning up the Pacific garbage patch. So I think uh, we're just much worse off actually than everyone's saying. Everyone's saying like automation is creating all this excess productivity, but at the same time, everyone's like really struggling to just pay rent, survive. And at the same time, we can't even, you know, we can't even do public work projects because we don't have the money for it. Yeah. And what do we do about inequality, about rising inequality? Or what should we do? I, I, I think the challenge with inequality is that like a lot of the interventions people dream up with the best intentions actually make things worse. I think the best thing we could be doing is lower the cost of living. It's, it blows my mind that in a place like Chiang Mai, Thailand, you can get an apartment with air conditioning, hot water, and refrigerator, just like furnished apartment for $80 a month. And I think a lot of what we're doing in terms of trying to equalize on a federal level, the, we're, we're looking at pay too much. We're looking at income too much. We have incredibly rising cost of living. It's really expensive rent, not just in San Francisco, but just overall the U.S., is very, very, very expensive to live. And it's, I think it's very important to look at why is it so expensive to live here? And can we really solve that by, let's say, pushing the, the minimum wage up that much higher? Because it has like a lot of like effects that people don't think through. There's a lot of like poorer states in the US uh, and also territories uh, like Guam, Puerto Rico. Like if you kind of forced a federal minimum wage on like the poorer states, it makes them less competitive. And that basically means the people there would not have as easy of a time to get jobs in those places, even though less money would actually go quite far there as well. Right? It, it, it forces them, even though they have lower cost of living, to compete with places with higher cost of living. So that creates a really weird inequality. And in part, companies have been solving that by just taking the labor that is not working too well even in the poorer states in the US and just going to poorer countries instead. 
So I think it's, it's very, very difficult to solve the issue. But I think for me, the overall most important metric for, for inequality is really the cost of living. If you could live a lot cheaper, it, there wouldn't be quite as high of a pressure to earn so much, right? Like, like I think cost of living is the much more important indicator than income. Totally. Paul, I want to be sensitive to your time. This has been a fantastic and wide-ranging episode. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Eric. If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 